Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. Well, let's go before the Lord in prayer. And let's believe him to touch as only he can and that the Lord is going to get all the glory because that is exactly where it belongs. Hallelujah. Lord, oh, wow, are we blessed to know you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we can praise you, Lord, that we can glorify you. And we just pray, Lord God, that you will move in a divine way. God, that you will just touch us where we need to be touched. God, just sweep across us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Touch these lips of clay with a coal from the altar. Hide your servant behind the cross that all might see Jesus and Jesus alone. And we pray this with one goal in mind and just one goal in mind, that the name of Jesus might be uplifted above every other name. And it's in in the name of our Lord we pray. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Certainly a common desire that really we all have is that our families, entire families, come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And today we're going to talk about how that can be facilitated and how the Lord, using us and yes, using others, can complete that task. Amen. Let's turn together to Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, and our text this morning is going to be out of Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 34, Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 34, and the title of this morning's message is How to Win Your Family to Christ, Amen. Now, before we start reading, we want to give a little bit of context behind this particular passage of Scripture, because a little bit earlier in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas have just been used to see a demonized woman who had the spirit of divination. They have just been used of God to see her delivered, and uh, her uh, owner was uh, owners were making a lot of money on her. And with that in mind, we begin in verse 19. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Hallelujah. What a wonderful Outcome, And, of course, that is the outcome, really, that we all seek. Now, the situation here is, uh, is very symbolic because uh, Paul and Silas, upon seeing this demonized woman delivered, uh, they were thrown into prison. 
uh, they were in chains. And it's interesting to note, in fact, that they were placed in the inner cell, we are told. Because back then, actually, they had a system uh, very similar to what most countries have today. Uh, a lot of countries today, they have maximum security prisons, they have medium security prisons, and then they have minimum security prisons, usually three levels most countries have. Some might have two or even four, but most uh, about three. And actually, that was much the same situation back then, but they had two levels. The outer cell is where you were placed if you had committed misdemeanors, you know, relatively minor crimes, and then the inner cell, which is where Paul and Silas were placed. That is where you were uh, serving your time if, in fact, you had committed a major crime. Now, this is significant to note because later on in the book of Acts, the magistrates apologize for putting them uh, away in prison, and they basically, uh, well, they didn't tell the truth. They basically said, oh, we were just trying to protect you and so forth. Well, clearly, something much more was going on than that because they were stripped, they were beaten, and they were put in the inner cell. And you do notice that they were in chains. And, of course, a lot of God's servants through the years have been put in chains chains even in the word of God. Jeremiah, in fact, he had the honor, if you will, of being placed in chains twice. Okay. So it's not too bad this morning, right? If you haven't actually been placed in chains. Okay. And even if you've been there once, hallelujah, Jeremiah has us beat. He was placed there twice. And of course you have Joseph from the Old Testament and, uh, and others. And this is very symbolic because a lot of us, even though we are not in physical chains, a lot of times when we try to share the gospel with members of our family, we'll, we feel like we have been placed in spiritual chains. Because a lot of our relatives, or at least some of them, might have said to us, uh-uh, don't tell me about Jesus in my home. This is my territory. If you want to tell me in church, that's fine, but not in my home. They put limitations upon us. We feel like, wow, how can we see them come to Christ if there are all these limitations that are placed upon us? But here's the beauty of it all, that even though Paul and Silas were chained, they were imprisoned, God used this situation to bring an entire family to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even if we do feel limited, even if the members of our family are showing great resistance and they say they don't want to hear, still God can intervene to save those people that we love the most. Hallelujah! And there are certain principles that we need to apply. Now, we've heard, we heard arguments yesterday in favor of a, a three-point sermon, Right? Then we've heard an argument in favor of four. Well, logistically, right, we have to do five. Okay, so there are five points in this message. And the first principle we need to apply and recognize is this, that we need to pray and sing in the midst of adversity. That's the real key, the first real key to seeing our family saved. Because notice what happens as we continue on in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And here's what I want you to focus on. And the other prisoners were listening to them. That's the beauty of They were listening. And you know what? Our relatives, those that we love the most, even if they don't want to admit it, they're listening. They're watching. They perceive so often that there's something different in us. Now, they may not want us to know that, but we need to realize they are listening. And notice that they listen, especially when we are facing adversity. Paul and Silas, they were in prison, and they were singing hymns to God, praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners must have thought, how on earth can they be filled with so much joy when there they are in chains just like us in the inner cell? How can that be? They didn't get it. And this is very important to recognize that we need to understand that people in the world, our family members who don't know Jesus, they're not so impressed by how high our highs are. Anyone can have a high. I mean, there are a lot of people who, uh, 
in fact, try to escape life by false kinds of highs and so forth. Anyone can have a high, or when things are going well, we might have a high. What impresses them is not how high our highs are, but how high our lows are. That's what they don't get when they know that we are going through it and we have a peace that surpasses all understanding. They don't get it. How can we have that peace? How can we have that joy when they know the circumstances that we are facing? That is what impresses the world. Because we look at the world and this life so much differently than people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. We learn to praise the Lord even in the midst of adversity. I remember, in fact, many years ago when I was a college student, I had some friends of mine who would often drive me to church, and they'd pick me up in their van. And uh, they had a sliding door on their van, and one time they dropped me off at my home. And they don't know this to this day. In fact, that's one of the reasons they're still very, very close friends, because I've never told them what I'm about to tell you. Because the wife and I... I was on the outside, she was on the inside, and we tried to close the sliding door at the same time, and both of us gave it some force, and it just about took off part of my finger. In fact, a doctor told me later if the uh, door had hit just one-sixteenth of an inch further down on my finger, I would have lost part of my finger. So anyway, it closed on my finger. They didn't know what happened. They drove away, and the blood was coming out like from a water fountain. I mean, it really looked like a fountain. And there were people all around that, that saw this. And what did I do? I started praising God. Now, I didn't praise God for what had happened. I didn't say, wow, isn't that cool? What a beautiful color of red. No, no, it wasn't because of what had happened. I praised God in what had happened. I knew that no matter how bad it looked, no matter how much it hurt, and no matter how much blood was coming out, and as I went across the street to my home, I mean, there was just a, a line, not even dotted, a line of blood, that much blood was coming out. I knew that God was in control, and it really touched a number of our neighbors. They thought, how can this person be so joyful when so much blood is coming out of his finger? The world does not get that. Now, some of us might remember uh, Kofi Annan, who used to be uh, the General Secretary of the United Nations. And he told of a story when he was uh, attending the University of Ghana as a student. The professor walked in the classroom, didn't say a word, but this is what he did. He went up to the board and he put a large white piece of paper and then he made a big black dot. And then he asked the students, what do you see? And one by one, the students responded what they saw. And interestingly enough, they all, every last one of them who raised their hands, they all responded the same way. And they said, we see a big black dot. And then after the professor received all of these answers, he said, all of you responded the same way. All of you responded by saying, you see a big black dot. That's just the problem with the world because none of you, not even one of you, mentioned the context. Not even one of you mentioned the big white piece of paper. And that's the problem with human beings. They focus on the black dots of life. They don't focus on the larger context. And you see, that's what makes us as Christians different Sure, we have black dots, difficulties in life, just like everyone does. All of us have that. But praise God, we know who's got the whole world in his hands. We know the context. We know that God has a plan. We know that God is in control. And our focus is not on the black dots of life. Our focus is on the fact that our God is in control. And when the world sees that in us, they don't get it. They don't understand it. But that's a witness to them, you see. They perceive that there's something different in us. A lot of times they don't want to let us know that they perceive something different in us. But they do. Now, a lot of you may know we're not only missionary evangelists, but um, I'm a university professor. 
And because I'm a university professor, as you might imagine, I get to meet a lot of um, university sports coaches from different universities throughout the country. And one of my favorite things to do, in fact, even last night as we were dining after the service, I, I asked certain questions of uh, um, people here, especially on the worship team, because I, I feel like what an opportunity. It's one thing to have one opinion or another about what's happening in the UK or whatnot, but I love to ask people who are actually here, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Well, it's the same thing when I meet sports coaches. I think, wow, what an opportunity. There's some questions I always wanted to ask sports coaches, and here's my, here's my opportunity. I don't have to hypothesize. All I have to do is ask them. And one of the things that I was always curious about, especially at the collegiate level, was how does a sports coach decide who they are going to recruit for the team? And I think it's much easier if you're a professional coach because there's so much information out there about people who are uh, in college and, you know, in university athletics and so forth. But it's much more difficult when you have to choose from all these people who are in high school all across the country. And so I thought, how do they decide who they are going to choose? And the amazing thing is I've asked that question of a number of college coaches over the years. And the, the wild thing is basically they all respond the same way. Every last one of them that I have ever asked this question of, they've responded the same way. And it surprised me because I thought they look maybe for someone who's fast, someone who has a normal, uh, uh, an unusual amount of athleticism, or someone who's strong. But maybe that was a little bit farther down the list, but it was never number one, not even close to number one. They all responded by saying they look for someone with the right attitude. And the attitude that they mention specifically is they say, we look for a player whose focus is on the goal, whose focus, let's just say in American football, is on the goal line, and a person who doesn't focus on all the people coming at them, all the obstacles in his or her way, but the focus is on the goal line, and that person has the determination that I am going to get there no matter what, and there is not a defensive tackle, not a defensive end, no one who is going to stop me, American football again, but it can apply to any sport, cricket, what have you, I love cricket by the way, but that's another sermon, um, and they have the ball and they just have the attitude, no wonder, no matter who is coming at me, I am going for that goal line and I am going to score. Don't worry, I don't go that far. <laughs> but they look for someone with the right attitude. And that's the attitude that Christians have. We have received promises of God. We've received the promise of the promised land. And it's not just in glory. Of course, that's the ultimate promised land for you and I. But he's given us certain promises that will apply to our life on earth. That this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to believe for. And we as Christians, we don't focus so much on how the enemy might attack us or the trials that might come. We know that God has promised and he's going to get us there. Hallelujah. That is our focus. Praise God. Amen. The world does not understand that, and we need to realize the extent to which we walk and move ahead with this attitude and focus on the fact that our God is in control. That touches many of our family members who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, first ingredient is we need to pray and sing in the midst of adversity. Amen? Amen. Principle number two. We need to wait for the timing of God's intervention. Beautiful here. Verse 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. You cannot beat the timing of God's intervention. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to wait until God does something dramatic to share the gospel. But it does mean that when something dramatic comes, we need to be ready to jump on that opportunity. For example, obviously 9-11-2001 was a pretty major day in American history. And it was pretty amazing. There were a lot of people who on 9-10 were not open to Christ, 
but on 9-12 were very open to Christ. And the gospel was on the move in the aftermath of 9-11. Many people came to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we need to understand, though, is a lot of people face personal 9-11s. They go through times in their life where you think, wow, that person is never going to be open. And then suddenly something happens. It might be a tremendous trial. It might be a tremendous blessing. But something happens and suddenly they've changed. Suddenly their minds and their hearts are open. We need to be right there with the gospel because God has given us that opportunity. And it is amazing, some of the most stubborn people, I mean, if people looked at me before I was saved, they would have said, no way that person's ever going to come to Christ, and here I am. Because I had a personal 9-11, and that happens with a lot of people. One of the ways that uh, we went into missionary evangelism before I went into academic ministry, and looking back, one of the ways, I guess, that the Lord was preparing me for academic ministry is uh, one of the things I love to do, both as a, a college student, a university student, and then as a uh, postgraduate uh, student, is I love to witness to my professors. I just really enjoyed that challenge. And I remember I, when I was uh, uh, in college at the university level, I was witnessing to my philosophy professor, and he was an agnostic. And uh, it was interesting because um, in the syllabus, it said that we were going to spend uh, three weeks talking about uh, the proof for the existence of God philosophically, and then we were going to spend three weeks on the argument against the existence of God. Well, it was very interesting. This is after I had witnessed to him. And it was raining outside, and we were making the transition in the syllabus from talking about the arguments in favor of the existence of God to now moving on to the arguments against the existence of God. And he made that announcement to the class. He said, okay, we've completed the section on the arguments for the existence of God. Now we are going to talk about the arguments against the existence of God. And I'm not kidding. As soon as he made that statement, a bolt of lightning hit the building. It rocked, and the lights went off. And our professor was shook up. And he tried, he tried to make a joke out of it. He said, sorry, but I knew it made an impression on him because instead of following the syllabus and dealing with that for three weeks, the arguments against the existence of God, we spent 15 minutes on that topic. Amen. You cannot beat the timing of God's intervention. Hallelujah. Another occasion, I witnessed to another one of my professors, my a psychology professor, and he was much less polite, much more antagonistic, and he threw me out of his office. <laughs> and he said if I ever tried to share the gospel with him again, he would either give me an F for the course or he'd drop me entirely from the course. I mean, he was very, very antagonistic. Well, it was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class, and unfortunately, he got up in one class and he started teaching against God. It was really, really sad. And he said, what I'm going to show you is I am going to show you a video. And he said, it's regarding a movie that is about to come out portraying Jesus Christ as a homosexual. And he said, there are two uh, sides of the debate here, and I'm not going to tell you uh, which side I'm going to make fun of, but I'm going to make fun of one of the sides of this debate. So, of course, there were the movie producers who thought, you know, it was a fine thing to do, and, of course, the Christians said it was sacrilegious and so forth. And then, naturally, according to his worldview, he'd made fun of the Christians. And it was really a, really grieved me and other believers that he had done this. Well, the interesting thing was that, uh, again, it was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class, and the next class we came to, there was a sign saying that he was out and he was quite ill. Then the next class, same sign, he was ill again. And then the class after that, so for a full week, we were told he was very, very ill. So finally, he comes back, and uh, he's in better health, And he says, uh, I have an announcement to make before we begin today's class. He says, I've been very, very ill. I I should have really been uh, in the hospital. I've, I've had pneumonia, and I definitely should have been in the hospital because I didn't know whether I was going to make it or whether I was not going to make it. But he said, I have this one announcement to make. He said, there have been three times in my career 
that I have taught against God. The first two times within 24 hours, I was on my deathbed. And he said, this time I should have been in the hospital. I have learned my lesson. I will never teach against God again. Now, remember, when I had shared the gospel with him, he had thrown me out of his office. Well, after this happened, I discovered that he didn't get tenure. He was going to have to go to another university. And so I went up to him one time on the street, and I said, Oh, I understand that you you didn't get tenure, and are you looking into other universities? And uh, he said, Yes, he was. And I took a little bit of a risk, hoping that indeed the repentance was real. And I said, uh, Well... I'll pray for you. I'll pray that God open up the right door for you. And he thanked me. And then we started to walk away from one another. And then he turned back. And then, oh, by the way, uh, I really want you to pray for these universities. And he gave me Notre Dame and some other religious universities to which he was applying. But he said, pray especially for Notre Dame. I really want to go to Notre Dame. He had made a total change. You cannot beat the timing of God's intervention. Another time we were in Brazil, and Brazil's very special to us as I know it is to uh, Pastor Peter. And one time uh, I went to Brazil, and usually when I go to Brazil, I I have an interpreter who I've known for years, and one of the reasons I love to go to Brazil is he is one of the best interpreters I have. And interpreters are very, very important, as you might imagine. It's very, very humbling if you, you know, don't have an anointed interpreter, and also very humbling if you do have a great interpreter. And he is just fantastic, in part, for 36 years. So it's just been determined you now know I'm at least 36 years of age. <laughs> um, I, uh, with his wife and, uh, and uh, my interpreter and his family, but before he got married, uh, uh, I would, um, or actually it was about the time he was married, uh, I, he had a small place and I would stay with uh, his in-law's family. And uh, so one time, Paulo, his my interpreter's name, he said, Bill, I have you all scheduled uh, throughout you know, much of Brazil. And he says, there's one church I'd like to talk to you about. It is the church of my in-laws. And uh, they are wonderful Christians, he said, but they have one weakness, even though they do love the Lord greatly. And their weakness is they watch Brazilian soap operas. And uh, he said, Brazilian soap operas are even worse than American soap operas. They really are X-rated, and they are not meant for Christian consumption. Christians should not be watching these soap operas. They're late at night. But as much as my in-laws really do love the Lord, that's their weakness. They watch these Brazilian soap operas. And he said, Bill, pray about it. I'm not pushing this on you, but pray about it. I would really appreciate it when you preach at my in-laws' church church that you would address this issue that Christians should not be watching these Brazilian soap operas. So I prayed about it and I felt a peace to go ahead and not spend the entire sermon, but maybe five or ten minutes of the sermon I preached against Brazilian soap operas. And then we came back. We came back to the in-laws home and Paulo was there and so forth. And the in-laws quietly went upstairs. And I just assumed that they had gone up to change, you know, out of the more formal clothing that they wore to church. But what really was going on, this was after an evening service, they went up, especially after I had preached on the topic, very quietly, and they were about to watch Brazilian soap operas. And uh, my interpreter even asked them, you know, what did you think of Bill's sermon and so forth, especially the piece about the soap operas? And they said, oh, it was very nice and so forth, very anointing. But they still went up to watch the Brazilian soap operas. And again, we didn't know it. And all of a sudden, we heard a boom. There was an explosion, and it rocked the entire two-story house. And they came down the staircase, all of the in-laws going, We repent! We repent! We repent! When they went to turn on the television, it exploded. In over 200 pieces, we saw it all over their bedroom. The entire bedroom was covered with what used to be a television set 
You cannot beat the timing of God's intervention. Hallelujah. And so God has a way even with our most stubborn relatives. We might say, oh, I give up. They're never going to come. But God has a way of intervening, of giving them a chance. And you know what? This, things like this might happen just two or three times in a person's life. But they do happen. And when they do happen, we need to be right there to share about Jesus. Because that just might be the moment that they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. Point number three. We need to be more concerned with their salvation than with our comfort. Verse 27. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, do not harm yourself. We are all here. Now, that's pretty amazing if you think about it. I mean, God had just intervened with this absolutely fabulous earthquake. It shook everything and even the chains fell off. I mean, the temptation would be, because remember, Paul and Silas are, I mean, they're righteous people. They've done nothing wrong, and yet they've been wrongly accused just because they took a stand for Jesus and saw a woman delivered, and that's why they're in prison. They could have easily concluded, hey, this is God come to rescue us. He's intervening in a righteous way. Let's get out of here. The prison doors are open. The chains have been loose. Let's go. But no. They were more concerned with the salvation of this jailer than their own comfort. And we need to be that way. Now, this is the, one of the things I really respect about my, my precious wife. She, uh, almost everyone in her family is saved, and I'm very, very thankful for that. But um, she, uh, before, especially before her marriage, she knew a lot of people who were friends who were not saved. And one of the things that's always impressed me about my wife is she really has a heart for these unbelievers that God has placed in, in her life. And she's always been willing to sacrifice for them. And my wife and I are very, very close. And we just always, if at all possible, we just always like to be together. And if we're, we're apart, we're constantly phoning each other, texting each other. I mean, you know, you name it. And our minds are uh, upon one another and the Lord just uh, throughout the day, if in fact uh, we're apart. And so we don't like to be apart. And uh, yet, uh, when we uh, were living in California some years ago, and of course we primarily still do live in California, but uh, early in our marriage, before we started to have kids, uh, there was a friend of hers who was living in Chicago, unsaved, and contacted my wife and said, I'm pregnant. Uh, my mom is not available to help me with the pregnancy. Would you mind coming out to Chicago for a couple of weeks and helping me in the last days of the pregnancy and also the early days after the child is born? And Haley prayed about it, and she really felt like this is what she was to do. And it was, I guess, maybe either the longest or second longest time that we've ever been apart from one another. So we took it very, very seriously, but we both felt a release that she was to go. And um, it was very sacrificial of her because she did not have very comfortable surroundings when she was there. She had to sleep on the floor in the living room, and the husband would get up at about 5 o'clock in the morning, and he wasn't particularly quiet in the kitchen, which uh, was uh, located juxtaposed with the uh, um, living room. So he would often wake my wife up, and my wife would just get very, very tired because she wasn't getting much sleep. But the neat thing was, my wife was more concerned with the salvation of her friend than her own comfort. She was okay with that time on the floor in the living room because she knew she was being a light, a light for Jesus Christ in ministering to her friend. And the same thing with us. I mean, we really try to reach out to friends of ours, members of my family. We, you know, we try to buy them gifts. We try to visit them and so forth. And it uh, doesn't matter. They may not give a whole lot in return, or they might not come visit us very often, if at all. But praise God, the sacrifice is worth it. 
And sometimes it's hard. I mean, sometimes we'll, we'll think, okay, we're going to buy the next round of gifts for our relatives and so forth. And we're thinking, wow, this is going to add up to quite a bit of money. And we might be tempted to ask, wow, we really can't afford it this year. We've had some setbacks. But you know what? Of course it's worth it. Because how can you put a, a dollar amount on the value of a soul? So it's worth it, amen, to put the salvation of our relatives ahead of our comfort. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Fourth principle that we need to follow is we need to know how to respond when a believer expresses an unbeliever expresses interest. And so we see these wonderful words that all of us love to hear in verse 30. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And, you know, sometimes uh, when our unbelieving family members ask such a question, we're, we might be in a state of shock. We've been praying for it so long when they do ask the question, it's kind of like, oh, 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 wow, what do I do now? And yet, praise God, what is key is that we respond with love and we respond appropriately. That's the key, with love and appropriately. In fact... I'll tell you a story. It's, it's not a true story, but it, it might as well be a true story. In fact, maybe it will be true. Some of you might apply it after, after this message. I don't know. But there was a, a mother who uh, had a daughter and her complaint with her grown daughter who was in her 30s. The mother was in her 50s. And uh, her complaint, her main complaint uh, regarding her daughter is that her, her daughter almost never called her. And so finally, she just couldn't handle it anymore. And so she decided to really leave a huge hint using her message phone. And so when someone would call and leave a message on her message phone, this is how her message would would read. This is how it would sound. She'd say, uh, if you are a salesperson, press 1. If you're a friend, press 2. If you are my daughter, who almost never calls me, Press, and I don't know what, if this number is the same here, 911, is that the number you use for emergency? What's the number? 119, what do you use? 911? 909? 999, that's even better. I like your system better personally. You don't, you don't forget that. But she said, if you're my daughter, almost never calls me, press 999 because I'll get a heart attack that you called. Now, Now, again, that's not a true story, but perhaps as a result of sharing it today, it will be a true story. And you're thinking, you know what? That is a great idea. That's how I am going to communicate that to my daughter. But the idea is, uh, you know, we can say that we love and pray and pray for a person all that we want, but our unbelieving relatives need to know that we love them. They need to know that we care. You know, it's the weekend, and I'm sure weekends here are are much as they are in the United States. Uh, After church, there's uh, probably a a lot of availability on on the television and the Internet for all kinds of entertainment. You can uh, watch uh, what we call soccer, what you call football or cricket, or you can watch uh, a wonderful movie or whatever the case may be, and that's fine. Hallelujah. Thank God for leisure. Thank God God gives us leisure. But you know what? If we're always doing that and we don't reach out to our family and call them or visit them to to show that we care, how much are we loving them really? It's very easy to say that we love them. We need to show them that we love them. And the way that we show them that we love them is we give of our time, even sacrificially. And you know what? Uh, maybe our, our relative uh, likes a different sports team than we do. Take them out to their favorite sports team. Now, I'm originally from New York. I like the, the New York Yankees and uh, the baseball team. And I remember being very touched when a fellow who I know did not like the Yankees took me out to a Yankee game. And I knew the only reason my friend was there was to bless me because that friend knew that I liked the New York Yankees. Now, it's wonderful if you like the same team, but I mean, wow, what an act of love to take, and it might more, maybe it's to some movie or some event that we're not interested in at all. 
Maybe they love the ballet and well, we're not into the ballet at all. Or maybe it's into some uh, symphony and we're not into symphonic music, but we know that our relative is, what a way to show the love of Christ. We need to invest time. When we spend time with people, people understand that indeed we really care. Amen? Now, we need to not only respond with love, we need to respond appropriately. And sometimes we Christians and we even full gospel people, we don't respond appropriately because to respond appropriately first means that we need to listen and try to be sensitive to that other person. And, you know, we we talked uh, yesterday at the conference about hearing from God and the prophetic and so forth, but we need to use the the giftings in in a loving way. You know, Peter, uh, Pastor Peter, I thought, addressed it very beautifully where, where a prophet fits in the context of the local church. And I'd like to piggyback on that a little bit and, the, and say there is a, an appropriate way for someone who's being used to the Lord to act in the midst of unbelievers as well. And a lot of people, when they think of someone exercising the prophetic, they think of someone who talks. But you know what? Wow, the prophets listened. They listened to God, they listened to others, and they did that first. And sometimes when we're trying to counsel someone, we as believers are trying to counsel someone who is really hurting, some people are so anxious to talk. Oh, oh, I know the solution to your problem. I sense it from the Lord. But we don't listen. And that's not responding appropriately. And even if we mean well, to not respond appropriately can do a lot of damage. Now, this... Other example that I'm going to give, it is a true story. Some years ago when uh, George Bush, not this last one, but the dad, George H.W. Bush, the the elder, um, when he was president, the vice president at that time was Dan Quayle. And true story, what I'm about to describe, he came to visit the state of Illinois, just somewhat outside of Chicago. And there was a congresswoman who knew that he was coming, and she wanted to really greet him with much fanfare and glitter and so forth. And she meant well, and what she did is she gathered together all the children in primary school throughout her district, thousands of them, and gave them each a little American flag. I'm sure you do. I've seen tapes, and you do similar things here in the, in the UK with you know different flag, obviously. But you know, you wave it and so forth, and people get excited. I've seen when the Queen comes to town. A lot of times, you know, the flags come out and so forth, and same kind of thing. So these thousands of children were given an American flag, and the idea was that when uh, Vice President Dan Quayle's motorcade would come from the airport and into the main streets of town, all these thousands of primary school children were to wave their flag and go, Welcome, Vice President Quayle! Well, sounds innocent enough, but again, you have to work things out to make sure it's appropriate because the instructions this congresswoman gave to uh, the primary school children uh, were along the lines of when you see a black motorcade come down the street, you wave those flags and yell at the top of your lungs. Only problem was the first black motorcade to come was not Vice President Quayle's motorcade, but a funeral procession. And so here comes this for a funeral procession, and then these thousands of children waving the American flags. just wasn't appropriate. So we need to respond with love. We need to respond appropriately when our loved ones express interest in Jesus. Amen? And the fifth and last point, and really the one that is so underemphasized, is we need to realize that there is often one key member of the family in terms of salvation. Because notice what happened here. Verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, why did they say that to the jailer? They must have had a sense that this jailer was a very significant individual in his family, a key person, and that if he came to Christ, his whole family would come to Christ. 
Now, the Lord is often a God of irony because I, of course, ended up marrying, thankfully, a South Korean. And it's very ironic that the first person I ever saw come to Christ was a South Korean. In fact, he came to Christ on my birthday many, 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 many years ago. It's already been determined. I'm at least 36 years of age. (laughs) And I even prayed. It was my birthday. I said, Lord, what a great birthday present it would be to see the first person I ever saw come to Christ. And it was a South Korean. I still remember his name, Young Hoon Hwang. And he came to Christ, and his wife and children were still in South Korea. He was a student, college student. And um, I said to him when he told me that his family was still in South Korea and they were going to come over in the next month or two, I said, well, let me know when they come because then we can share the gospel with them and hopefully they can come to Christ as well. I'll never forget what Jung Hun Hwang responded. He said, oh, They'll come to Christ. Now that I'm a Christian, they also will come to Christ. He knew he was the key person in that family. And many times that's the way it works. I mean, there are probably families here who could give that kind of a testimony that some key person in your family came to Christ and then boom, boom, maybe two others came. And maybe you were that key person. Or maybe it was your mom or maybe your dad or what have you. But a lot of times one person comes and then boom, boom, suddenly there are three people who are saved in the family. That is often the way that it works. I mean, for and what what is so important is that when we pray for our family members to come to Christ, the tendency is to pray for those who are dearest to us. But a lot of times the person who is dearest to us is not necessarily the key person. For example... I have an aunt and uncle. They're very precious people. My aunt, uh, most of the time when we preach in her area, and it happens to be Ohio, interestingly enough, we're getting to hear Ohio a lot this weekend, and uh, whenever we preach in her area of southwestern Ohio, many times she will come to the service. And if you were to see her in a service, you would be absolutely convinced She was a Christian. She'd lift her hands as high as anyone in the room. She speaks Christianese, if you know what I mean. Okay? She knows all the right words to say and so forth. And people even come up to to us and say, Oh, isn't it wonderful that your aunt is a Christian? She's not a Christian. She would be a Christian except for my uncle. He is an agnostic, a very strong agnostic, insists that Except, except if we're in town, no one in their family goes to church. And so when I pray for them, yes, of course I pray for my aunt, but I especially pray for my uncle because I know the day that he opens up, the moment that he opens up, my aunt will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that key individual. Sometimes, in fact, um, adults, parents may not be Christians, but... They bring their children to church, and in fact, ironically, sometimes the children are the key people because day after day they drop their children off at church. The adults don't come to church, but after so many weeks of dropping their children off at church and the children love church, guess what? The parents end up coming also. I mean, many times this is the way it works, and it's very important when we pray for our family members to come to Christ, that we be able to identify who the key person is. Some of us might have a daughter who is married, and we might be praying, oh, I want my daughter to come to Christ. But it may be that it is the son-in-law who is the key person, meaning the moment the son-in-law opens up just like that, our daughter will come to Christ. So we need to not only pray for our daughter, We need to pray for our son-in-law to open up. We need to be able to identify who that key person is. A lot of what has happened in Russia, the Soviet Union, uh, in the 1980s and the 1990s was because there were certain key people who were more open to Christianity than Lenin had been, than Stalin had been, than Khrushchev had been, and so forth. Now, Mikhail Gorbachev, to my knowledge, is not a Christian, but his mother is a Christian. And that really affected his attitudes toward the West 
and towards Christianity. Let me give you a couple of quotes from Mikhail Gorbachev. And by the way, I don't want you to leave here saying, wow, we had this crazy preacher who insisted that Mikhail Gorbachev is a born-again Christian. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is he had a very different attitude towards Christians and his predecessors. He was a key person in the history of Russia. Here are a couple of quotes. This is what he said, uh, a quote that he gave to an Italian newspaper. In short... We promote the cause of Christ. Now, I can't imagine Lenin saying something like that, or Stalin. Or on another occasion, he referred to himself, and I quote, as a lifelong socialist following in the footsteps of Christ. (laughs) Now, some of you may say, well, that's a contradiction in terms, okay? I'm not going to go there, but hey, I mean, it's something. Again, a lot different than Lenin and Stalin. And then he also said, and I wish more people had figured this out. If there would, ev- if there is ever to be peace in the Middle East, it would have to be founded on the spirit of Jesus. I say amen to that. Christian or no Christian, I mean, you know, I say amen to that. I wish more of our, if our leaders understood that, there would finally be peace in the Middle East. Now, Boris Yeltsin, and I realize Boris Yeltsin had his problems with alcohol and so forth. He claimed, by the way, to be a Christian. Whether he was or wasn't, that's God's business to determine. But one interesting thing is that you may not know is Boris Yeltsin holds the record for the greatest import order of Bibles in history. He ordered 14 million Russian Bibles from the American Bible Society to be distributed throughout Russian schools. Now, when Pravda challenged him on that and said, what are you trying to do? You're trying to convert the Russian people to Christianity? Boris Yeltsin replied, no, 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 no. I'm not trying to convert our young population to Christianity, but the reality of the matter is our society is based on the Bible. Our entire system of ethics is based on the Bible, and our children need to know it. Now, uh, you know, Putin's another ball game, okay? But uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin had a degree of openness. They were key people. Wherever they stood with the Lord, they were clearly more open than their predecessors. That nation's been changed. I mean, even now, uh, it was interesting because there was they had a Communist Party meeting recently uh, in uh, in Russia. And one fellow got up and uh, really said some anti-Christian things. And then another fellow in the meeting stood up and said, be very, very careful what you say about Christians because one-third of the membership of the Communist Party is Christian. And uh, I don't know, did you see the Winter Olympics, by the way? See the Winter Olympics? Now, there was uh, the figure skating championship for the ladies. And... um, my wife and I were pulling for the South Korean, okay? But she was up against a uh, Russian figure skating who wore this big cross. A lot of the Russian athletes now wear crosses, notice that. Uh, sadly, more than Americans and British do. Kind of wild, uh, quite a change. And um, after her short performance, the Russian skater's short performance, she gave one of the most demonstrative acts of giving glory to God I have ever seen an athlete give. And I turned to my wife and I said, this thing's over, sweetie. I hate to tell you, there's your winner because God's going to honor that. In other words, there were a lot of Christians in Russia, a lot of Christians in the Ukraine, which, as you know, used to belong to the Soviet Union. They have a church in the Ukraine now, 25,000 members, and it's full gospel. And they're sending missionaries to other places in the world. The Ukraine is some of the largest churches in the world right now, and it's in part because two key people, and again, whether, you know, whether Yeltsin was a believer or not, that's God's business. To my knowledge, Gorbachev was not. Yeltsin, that's, you know, for the Lord to determine, but clearly their attitude was different. And yet, because they were at least more open, it really helped change the history of that country. So a lot of people who might not have considered Christ years before now considered Christ. And, of course, there are many more Christians in the Ukraine and Russia than uh, there, there clearly used to be. Uh, I remember, in fact, one last example I'll give, and I think you'll find this memorable, is uh, when I was a college student, university student, I saw uh, another Christian come to Christ, and he was on the university wrestling team. 
And he really got on fire for God. And he really wanted to see the entire wrestling team come to Christ. And so he started to witness one, one by one to the various members of the team. And I learned a lot, in fact, about wrestling teams through this fellow. His name was Bruce. And I always thought wrestling teams at universities were small. But actually, at least this wrestling team had 45 individuals because I didn't realize not only did they have different classes by weight, but they have number one ranked heavyweight against number one ranked heavyweight of another university, number two versus number two heavyweight, number three heavyweight versus number three. So you have a lot of people on the wrestling team. I didn't realize that. I received an education when I knew him. And he wanted to see all 45 come to Christ, but as he witnessed to each one individually, no one was coming. I mean no one. And then he really sought God and said, Lord, what's going on here? I'm not seeing any progress. And the Lord quickened to him, "Uh uh-uh. You're going about it the wrong way. You need to identify who is the key person on the team. And if you can see the key person on the team come to Christ, many on the team will come to Christ. And it was really obvious who the key person was. It was the number one ranked heavyweight on the team who in all his years of wrestling had only lost two matches. Just an incredible record. His name was Steve Durst. And so sure enough, Bruce shared with Steve Durst. And Steve Durst, the best way I can describe him is uh, he looks kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, He's one of these guys. You ever see a guy, you can just tell by looking at their face, that they're muscular. I mean, even even their head is muscular. You know, they're bulging muscles when they speak. And you just know, wow, that guy's in shape. Look at those jaw muscles and, you know, forehead muscles. Yeah, and that's kind of the way Arnold Schwarzenegger is. I mean, he, he's got a head like a tank, let alone his body, okay? And Steve Durst was that way. You looked at his head, and all you'd have to see is his face, and you'd say, wow, that guy is as hard as rock. And he was. Well... Steve Durst came to Christ. Within two weeks, 30 members of the 45-member wrestling team had come to Christ. Within just two weeks. Because the most respected wrestler on the team was the key person he had come to Christ. In fact, Steve Durst, I knew Steve Durst, and he actually came in in handy for me one time. Because uh, I would go door to door. And, you know, as, as we've shared with you, we, that's really how we started in ministry, going to the streets just like you folks are doing. And uh, we go to door to door. And one time, as we were going door to door, sharing the gospel, knocked on the door and uh, shared the gospel with this fellow. And he said, ah, I'm not interested in Christianity. Christianity is for sissies. And I prayed and I thought, okay, Christianity is for sissies. How do I address this? And I thought, Aha, Steve Durst. So I said to him, uh, okay, you think Christianity is for sissies. If I were to bring a friend of mine here a week from now, would you be willing to say the same thing to his face? And he said, absolutely. Christianity is for sissies. So I got on the phone with Steve Durst. And again, he's 215 pounds of solid muscle. And I said, Steve, would you do me a favor? Here's the situation. And Steve said, right up my alley. I'll be there. So next week, knocked on the person's door again. And I said, you remember me from last week? He said, absolutely. I said, are you still of the view that Christianity is for sissies? He said, absolutely. Christianity is for sissies. And I said, do you remember last week you told me that uh, you would be willing to say that to my friend also, to his face? He said, absolutely, bring him on. Christianity is for sissies. So I said, let me introduce you to my friend. Steve Durst was, you know, around the corner, you know, like this big Bible under his hand and so forth. Let me introduce you to the heavyweight champion of the university wrestling team. He's only lost two matches in his career. He's a senior. Here is Steve Durst. So Steve Durst comes around the corner. Would you tell Steve, please, that Christianity is for sissies? And he said, well, well, I mean, out of context. Within five minutes, he had given his heart to Christ. (laughs) 
Identifying who the key people are in our family is very, very important. So when you pray for the for your family to come to Christ, not only pray for those that you care about the most, but also pray for those people who you know are key people in the family. And that sneeze was well-timed because this principle is nothing to sneeze at. <laughs> Amen? Praise God. Let us pray. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening, and we trust that the Word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church, or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org. If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless, and goodbye.